We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Steve. Hey, uh, I want to read something to you and tell me what you think of it. Sounds good. Okay, ready? This is from the May 1983 issue of Coin Connection, the uh, internal Atari magazine for promoting their coin-op games. Okay. It goes. Now, at last, coin video game players can take the plunge head-on into the world of... Luke Skywalker in the blockbuster game we have all been waiting for. The Star Wars coin video game. The biggest entertainment phenomenon of our time is exploding on the coin video scene just as the film has exploded into every aspect of our lives. You cannot ignore the power of the Force. Operators and players alike will feel the Force. The force of a powerful new video game with graphic simulation that is a visual assault on the imagination. Star Wars moves beyond the realm of a game and into a complete coin video experience. There's a lot more, but I mean, that's basically the gist. What does that make you feel? It makes me feel like I want to play that game. Well, I wanted to play that game too, and 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 it's funny. I wanted to play that game for a really long time, and never got the chance to play it. In fact, I think I wanted to play that game for about six years. Well, and that's the thing. I, I, um, one Star Raiders on the Atari 800 was the closest you could get to playing that game. That's true. That's true. When that but came out, it, 1979. It is weird that at that time. Six years and three movies, but really six years to get to the iconic part of the end of the first movie. If that happened now, people would have forgot about it within 15 minutes. Yeah, no, no, you know what I mean? like, there'll be a really good example. When when Av- when the Avatar like land opened at Disney World like eight years after Avatar came out, it's like, huh? Yeah. 
huh? Like, I don't know. I don't get it. But look, um, before we get into talking about the Star Wars game, I know this is a little premature and we don't usually do this. I have a story I've written and recorded about Star Wars itself. Can we play that first? Let's do that right now. The Day the Empire Came to Town, Part 1. In September 1977, there was an advertisement in the local paper, The Daily Breeze, that announced the characters from Star Wars would be appearing in person at the local Toys R Us in Torrance. This was not just a local occurrence. These characters were showing up everywhere that autumn, from Florida to California. After seeing Star Wars earlier that summer, I thirsted for any and all information I could find out about that amazing movie. The problem was, there was nothing to find. Network news and newspapers were no help. This was the 70s, just after Watergate. They were still doing the rightful job of keeping public officials honest with real journalism. Entertainment news was scarce, with gossip about celebrities relegated to the National Enquirer and People magazine. In this era, news that kids might enjoy existed only in the pages of publications like Boy's Life and Dynamite, magazines with lead times of three months or more. Recent news about products for kids, toys, or movie fandom was virtually non-existent. The only real place to find toys was by searching through the Sears Wish book, and that only came out once a year in the fall. So when my twin brother and I read in the Daily Breeze newspaper that Darth Vader, Chewbacca, and the Stormtroopers would be traipsing through the local Toys R Us, we convinced our dad to take us. This was not exactly a normal decision for my dad. Besides taking us to the movies on occasion and to the hardware store, he rarely took us anywhere. I can count on one hand the number of times my dad took my brother and I to any event that did not involve Christmas shopping, soccer, motorcycles, or gun shows. And that magical day at Toys R Us was one of those times. We got up early that morning. Well, my dad got up. My brother and I never went to sleep the night before. How could we? We were going to see the guys from Star Wars at Toys R Us. My brother and I sat at the kitchen table while my mom drank her coffee. I wonder how the Star Wars guys will get there, I said to my brother. I don't know, he said back. They'll probably arrive in a limousine, my mom said. I'd never seen a limousine before. The day was getting better by the minute. When we finally slipped outside at 8.30 a.m. to get going, my dad snapped a photo of my brother and I. I was a guy on the left, looking glum. I have no idea why I look so upset in the photo. My wife says I was probably trying to put on my best hand solo face. She might be right. My twin brother looked like a moisture farm boy on the right. Our brand new 1976 Datsun 710 Landspeeder was just behind us. When we got to Toys R Us, there were droves of people waiting in line to get inside, but the doors were still closed. We drove by them, but had to park at least a Kessel Run or two away from the entrance. After we landed the car in the lot for the Del Amo Mall next door, we hiked the half mile or so back to Toys R Us. I wonder who will be here, I said aloud. The ad showed Darth Vader or Stormtrooper and Chewbacca. That would be awesome, my brother replied. My dad said nothing. He just walked in front of us, leading to the front of the store. Part 2. I had no idea I was a nerd. 
Maybe I was not a nerd yet, but I had the massive potential to be one. I was a proto-nerd. I just didn't know it until one summer day in 1977. All I knew was on that particular day, my dad took us to the movies. It was the middle of summer, and we arrived at the Redondo Beach General Cinema Number 1 very early, but there was still a long line for the movie. I'd never waited in line for a movie before. As the line inched up towards the ticket counter, we passed a movie poster in a glass shadow box with the words, Now Playing, at the bottom. The poster showed a blonde boy in white, pointing some kind of gun straight out at me. On his right side, a girl wearing white was shooting a laser into the distance. On his left, a guy who looked like a cowboy without a hat was firing in the opposite direction. Behind the boy was a guy who looked like a black knight with a giant hand holding some kind of red sword. All around him were spaceships flying and shooting at each other. I was kind of hoping for another movie like The Bad News Bears or Smoking the Bandit, but this looked like a science fiction movie. I'd seen a few science fiction movies before, and most of them were really boring. Planet of the Apes moved slowly and had so little action. Logan's run was just one long, boring chase. And while Westworld had shown some promise, the story was small and suffocating. TV was not much better. Star Trek just seemed so talky. And the old black and white clips of Flash Gordon serials they showed with cartoons in the afternoon looked too silly for words. So I was not particularly excited. Two adults and three children for Star Wars at 10 a.m., my dad said to the man at the counter. He handed over $12 and we all walked towards the theater. He bought us a bucket of popcorn, which was out of the ordinary, and then we all sat down together about four rows from the back of the theater. Fifteen minutes later, the lights went down and the movie started. I don't recall any previews. I only recall seeing the 20th Century Fox logo appear on the screen, and then the words that would change my life as a kid forever. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Well, that's not true. I recall one thing. My mind was completely blown away, and my life as a kid was changed forever after that. My kid life had two definite faces. B.C. before Cantina and A.D. after Darth Vader. Nothing was ever the same again. Part 3 by the time we made it back from our outer rim parking space, people were being led into the store. The crowd was packed inside at the back on a makeshift pathway from the stockroom down the board game aisle and around the side on another aisle. We waited for about an hour before anything happened. Everyone seemed to be looking at a doorway that led to a stockroom at Toys R Us. Without anything better to do, I looked in that direction too. When the movie Star Wars was released in May 1977, there were no toys available at retail. It took Kenner months to get toys to the shelves, but even then, they were not available for Christmas 1977. There's really only a promise that parents could buy for their kids that stated the toys would arrive sometime in 1978. It was called the Early Bird Gift Certificate Package, which consisted of a cardboard background, a membership card, and a certificate to mail in to get your toys in 1978. These visits by costumed Star Wars characters in 1977 were designed so that the chain could sell kids on the the amazing idea of receiving an envelope with some flimsy paper products for Christmas while waiting months for real molded plastic toys to arrive. When it all started, it was not with a bang, but with a whimper. First out came Jeffrey Giraffe, the mascot for Toys R Us. I'd never seen him in person before. Honestly, I'd never seen anyone in person before, so it was really cool. After the walking Toys R Us commercial finished his march, out came a bona fide Star Wars Stormtrooper. He was escorted by, quite possibly, the most stereotypical-looking 70s Toys R Us clerk I could possibly imagine. There's a photo from that day that's my favorite. Not only is it so quintessentially 1977, but you have to notice something 
doing in this photo. There's a guy at the far top left. He's leaning out of the stock room and he's pretending to shoot the stormtrooper with a gun made with both hands and his fingers. This is a grown man pretending to shoot the stormtrooper. And this is awesome for several reasons. First, in 1977, grown men loved Star Wars so much they actually did things like this. Second of all, you could get away with it without being tackled by Homeland Security. Third of all, I wish it was me. Fourth of all, it was fantastic. He made a gun out of his bare hands to shoot at a stormtrooper. How is that not fantastic? Chewbacca came out next. I have to say that any seven-year-old notion I had that these characters were not real ended right there for me. The Chewbacca costume that day was amazing. I have no idea where these costumes came from, but whomever acquired them, they did an awesome job. I believe Chewie was holding his laser crossbow too, but I can't be for sure because it's not in any of the photos I have. Finally, out came Darth Vader. Marked hush came over the crowd when Vader arrived. I truly believe that at that moment, Darth Vader had the ability to strike fear in the hearts of kids, probably even a few adults. I know I was a bit taken aback myself. I mean, this is a guy who magically choked his own people from across the room. This is a guy who killed Obi-Wan Kenobi. How could I, at seven years old, not be at least a little scared of being in his presence? I'm positive at least some people were at least a bit frightened by Darth Vader. This is how I know. In the photo of Darth Vader, you can see the same rebel scum that had his hands out trying to shoot the stormtrooper no longer in the photo. He was no longer using his hand laser to shoot the stormtroopers. He was cowering behind the door when Darth Vader arrived. Even he knew the limits of a hand laser against the Dark Lord of the Sith. The whole parade was over in about 20 minutes, after which the crowd was herded down a couple quickly assembled aisles crammed with every Star Wars consumer product then available. Puzzles, notebooks, posters, t-shirts, but no toys. That would have to wait for months. I looked at all the merchandise, but nothing caught my eye. I wanted an X-Wing badly, but there were none to be found. It was obvious that the marketers of 1977 were caught unprepared for the success of Star Wars. In lieu of the absent toys, they slapped a Star Wars logo on the same items that had been prepared for movies like Logan's Run and Planet of the Apes and Jaws in years prior. They had nothing substantial ready for us. My brother and I were chomping at the bit to play Star Wars for real. We wanted X-Wings and TIE Fighters and lightsabers and action figures, and we wanted them as soon as possible. Even so, I was still taken aback by it all. When just a few months before I had trouble spending my $8 at Toys R Us, I was now ready to buy any toy I could get my hands on related to Star Wars. I was hooked, caught, and ready to be reeled in. In fact, I don't recall ever feeling that way before. I was ready to buy, but there was not much to have. As we walked down the aisles of cheap Star Wars products, this exact thought crossed my mind. I need to get some Star Wars stuff now because I don't have any. I continued to scan the aisles on the way out and the only thing that caught my eye was a collection of Star Wars comic books. I paged through it and I noticed that it followed the story of the movie pretty closely, with a few extra scenes on Tatooine added from the original script. I paid my dollar and quarters earned from helping my dad fix the garage roof and then took it home. My brother bought his own copy. It was the best dollar I've ever spent. Since there was no other way for me to experience Star Wars at the time, the thought of going back to the movies again was pretty much out of the question for our family. That comic book became my conduit back into its clutches for years to come. With that comic book and its sequel, I held the entire Star Wars universe right in my hands. After that, Star Wars became a permanent part of my life. It colored everything I did for a very long time, but it was just the first in the line of many things to come. A nerd was born. Oh! 
Okay, what'd you think of that? Well, I remember all of that in vivid detail, especially the smell of the vinyl costumes and masks at that Toys R Us. Ooh, that's interesting. I, I just remember um, getting up that day and dad taking forever to get out the door because he had to take all his vitamins. I didn't really want to go either. You didn't? No, I'm sorry. I said probably he didn't really want to go either. Uh, I mean, he liked Star Wars. Yeah, um, but that thing to him probably on his day off was like, oh my God, I have to go to Toys R Us with a billion people well, to see the Star Wars You could Wars probably thing. do that stuff with your kids too. What did Has Ryan wanted to go to some Pokemon thing or something and did he get really early uh, to go do it? There, okay, so yes, there was a day last year when the new um, Super Smash Brothers was coming out for the Twitch and there was a... The Twitch? The, you mean the Switch? I don't know why I said the Twitch, man. But I anyway, don't know. I don't there know. was a day last year when they were previewing Super Smash Brothers for the Switch on a few Best Buys, and one of them happened to be near us. And Ryan and I stood in line for six hours to see and play the new Super Smash Brothers. Then I bought it for them for Christmas. That's actually that's actually that's pretty hardcore because I think for this Star Wars thing, we only it only took a couple hours of yeah, driving yeah. there and getting in line and, and waiting. It wasn't that long. You know, for people who didn't have a Toys R Us near them, I don't know who that would be. Probably um, people in Europe. No, I but don't know people. There's Toys probably probably places all around the U.S. that didn't have a Star- Toys R Us near them. That I, I don't too. Know. How about Canada? What I, Toys R Us was an unorganized mess until they decided to kind of be like a, an organized toy store in the mid Hey, hey, 90s. hey, I loved it. It had just long, long aisles just with, crammed with toys. It was fantastic. Piled to the ceiling. It was organized, just not organized the way you would want it to be organized. No, no, I loved it. I'm just saying it was an unorganized mess compared to like what you would see in a store now. Yeah, like well, now it's merchandise. so... Yeah, you're right. Well, merchandising wasn't the point. The point was to stuff as much possible stuff that could be sold in a store in one place. It was awesome. Yeah, but I mean, do you remember like at that time in 77, were there, I I mean, we weren't really aware. I think like maybe Kiss putting their blood into the the red dye for the comic books and stuff like that. There weren't a lot of cultural like... uh, touchstones for kids um evil Knievel jumping the you know um snake canyon i guess Um, Uh, evil Knievel would have been one there were quite a number of them not every kid was into all of them but there were uh so the number was so few that i would say it would be like in the the, only the kids who didn't have tvs would have missed some of them right but i mean do you remember any other nerd gathering because really I mean, that nerd. day I was turned into a nerd. That day that that we went to go see that to go see those guys come from Star Wars because I remember leaving that just thinking I got to get Star Wars stuff. I never thought about that before. There was no inkling that I needed to go get Brady Bunch crap at no, the store. No, we didn't have any or movie or TV related toys, really. No, um, no. So- I mean, we we did. Well, well. <laughs> 
I mean, or Evil Cable, which wasn't a really movie and TV related. It was dude related. Yeah, like, no, I mean, we did get the Planet of the Apes cardboard set, you know, that summer uh, that we got after yeah, having Dad with the garage. That was, that was because it was for that's because it cost fifty. I know because it was nothing. We didn't go out to go get it um, because and it was an awesome set, by the way. But we didn't go out to go get it because it was something we saw on TV. Where we didn't, we just happened to be at the store filled to the roof with every toy imaginable and decided we wanted to have it. Now I've got a ton um, of photos from, to, from that day that hopefully they're posted on our on um, Instagram and on the website, will Twitter. Be. Give and them to me. and I, I might make a video with them in it as well. But they're they're pretty cool pictures. You can Get actually see the guy hiding when Darth Vader comes out, which I think is so absolutely those the hilarious. ones dad took went with his big yes. con- Canon camera. Uh, um, no, it was a Konica. Konica camera. Right, yeah. right. But what do you think of, okay, so let's go back a little bit. Star Wars itself, the effect of Star Wars was pretty hardcore on us at seven years old. Yeah, you couldn't really explain exactly what it did, except for there was before Star Wars and there was after Star Wars. And we were the perfect age because kids younger than us wouldn't get it for a couple of years until they saw Empire Strikes Back. And then again, it was a different movie. And kids older than us by like five years, they were just like Star Wars, like you know what I mean. Like it wasn't. Yeah, a big no, deal. I mean our older sisters were like, eh, I don't care. But not all kids. I mean, there were kids younger than us and kids older than us that it was a huge deal too. But I think there were a lot more people. Well, I think, I think from what you're putting your your, I think there's an age gap where it was perfect, and then there was a gap where. There are some older kids are like, oh, don't give a crap. And then there are actually people in their 20s and above that are like, holy shit, I've never seen like that before. So, right, right. There was, a, there, there was a, um, you know, there were teenagers there, uh, high school. I, I think there was a, a majority, not a majority. There was a large percentage. Well, it of wasn't all just little kids at this thing. No, I just <laughs> there's a large, large percentage of kids in certain age groups that would have been like, that's just lame. Man. Yeah, but I don't remember it being just like us pushed up with a bunch of teeny boppers. I mean... We, I, I, as is in my mind's eye, we were a few of the a few of the only seven year olds at this thing. Probably, probably true. I mean, I think in the pictures you can see that too. I, whichever ones have the crowd in it, you know, people are older. You know, Star Wars captured everybody. It wasn't just some little kid thing that was going on. It was well, quite yes, a cultural I, revolution. Well, for, I just mean that at that exact moment. It was like Star Wars came out and then the Atari 2600 came out, which we didn't even know about until a year, a year later. And all of those things together kind of culminated in like I mean, this yeah. giant set of nerd culture. That's pretty crazy. And also Legos arrived full time right about that time, too, which is like Legos and, and video games and Star Wars all showed up just about the same time. Like we were the perfect age for that stuff right Space in the vertical plane. Space Legos started coming out. And Not even also, Space Legos. I'm just talking about Legos. Well, also, Legos were so... I know, the Lego bricks were so much like pixel graphics, too. That this it is was, true, but I didn't put that together because I didn't know what pixel graphics were. Like, it didn't... That didn't... Yeah. yeah didn't put right, that right. together. Um, I think we would have thought of maybe Light Bright was something we thought of too at the time, but I'm not sure. I, don't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have but thought because any because that was not in my purview. To me, pixels didn't, didn't exist. I didn't even know what what it was. That was a. It was the Atari was crisper on the screen than TV, so it wouldn't it wouldn't even have uh, you know occurred to me. You are correct. It was crisper, like that signal that came onto the black and white TV first. Actually, color TV. That well, this is 1981 anyway. 
It was a crisp, crisp. Oh, so this is not crisp. 1981. What are you talking about? No, no. When we got Atari. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. When we had Atari. But we played, we played it played in '78. So. Oh yeah, we saw it in at like different stores that we would go play it, and it was a crisp, crisp, crisp signal. Exactly. Looked fantastic. Um, it was very space age. Yes, it was space age. That was a good word, space age, because that's what we're talking about. Sorry. Anyway, so let's let's say so you know yes we saw the Star Wars and we became nerds. We didn't get Star Wars toys for a while. Not Christmas seventy seven. Not Christmas even seventy eight. It was it was our birthday in seventy nine when we actually got our first Star Wars toys. Yeah, and I know that because Mom kept very exacting records in the photo books. That's all I know. Everything you always wonder like how does Steve remember stuff? I don't. I just I used to go through the photo books Mom made that she put all our photos in order. Um, and I would just pour over them to figure out what happened at what time. So yeah, our kids aren't going to have the same. No, a kind of, but not. But they'll not be able really. to look through folders and folders of of photos that are that are on um, Amazon that I have or or wherever. Yeah, know. and they're dated, close. But okay, so Star Wars comes out where we've gone ape ish for it, as Dad would say. Um, he wasn't quite as ape ish for it, but at least he took us. We took us yeah. to the movies. He took us to do that Star Wars thing. That was, I mean, I mean, yes, there were two events that happened months apart but for him that was like a banner year well we saw star wars and then there was no way to see it again well and no way to see it again because there's no way in hell we would go to the movies twice i mean there was right. a way to see it again let's be honest we just didn't it just wouldn't it didn't even come up to, we didn't even think about no it. i don't even yeah like going to the movies to see the same movie twice was not even a thing the only us. time it happened was in 80 or 81 when we went with Wesley to see the Blues Brothers and dad was mad at us for going to see the Blues Brothers with Wesley. And he wanted to go. So we like the next day or like that night, he took us to go see the Blues Brothers. Right, right. Because yeah. he loved he John Belushi and he loved John Belushi because John Belushi was an animal house and he loved animal house because it actually reminded him of his college experience. Which uh, he never what, really. Where was that? That was in. Um, that was uh, New London Junior College. Yeah. Is the one that he, that he attributed to being like that. He did not attribute Syracuse University no, he, to. But but that. But he never like really that. told us those stories. And now I'm kind of depressed that we never got them. Um, you know the, all those stories I in know. those in those comic books that they're his, in those his, cartoons his, that that cartoon that, that Hayne made. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll dig those out at some point. But anyway, so. So we've seen Star Wars. We've uh, we we get the tops trading cards. We get the story of Star Wars record. I don't know exactly when that comic was. Comic books, right? Did you say the comic books? The comic books. But really, I think the event that um, that really let us really kind of put Star Wars on the brain again. I know this sounds weird, and I kind of I kind of allude to this in the next story. But I'm going to talk about it now anyway. Is when Space Invaders came out. And this is why I say that, because there was this gap before Star Wars toys came out. So so you've got Star Wars comes out in 77. The, no actual Star Wars toys come out. But somewhere in early 78, Space Invaders came out. And between the Star Wars toys came out about the same time. But no kid really was going to get toys until Christmas. So, like, right. there was a huge gap where there was still no way to play Star Wars, but also, there was. Also, by the way, stores didn't start stocking those no, things No, they either. didn't. But there was, because you could, we went, after we played, we finished our final AYSO game, and they forced us to, to buy those $5 books of, of coupons. Remember those books of coupons right. for 5 bucks? I had a bunch of, like, um, 
a pizza two dollar off Domino's or not a Pizza Hut coupons and stuff. One of the coupons in there was a buy one get one free miniature golf coupon. Oh. Um, and there was the Castle Park was down the street, which we'd never been to, and Mom decided to take us there because we had the buy one get one free coupon. Mom was all over coupons. By yeah, way. she's all over coupons. And we went into as we went to go play miniature golf for the first time, we passed Space Invaders. And I think we both almost crapped our pants. We're like, what the hell is this? Probably. And then, and then, excuse me for saying that. I think we, we both, like, went nuts. Okay. Yeah, I went I went ape poop for I rem- I remember playing miniature golf, but I remember more what playing at miniature golf was is wanting to get back and see what that was. Um, and I had a quarter, and I know, but I think we, we must have watched some people play. But the whole idea that there were space-themed video games... Damn was like yeah. brand new and not only space themed but like space combat themed like that together was star wars i don't care what anyone else has to say about it yeah i mean th- th- basically there wasn't anything like that before that and and taito tato whoever that says there were a couple games on- i think like atari <coughs> had like starship one and there were a couple other games that had like x-wing like crafts on their on their sides and stuff, but they weren't really Star Wars. They weren't really space games like that. Yeah, I would say that I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that Space Invaders was playing Star Wars again. And and one re- reason was just honestly, stormtroopers were so dumb and easy to shoot. They were kind of like the Space Invaders coming down the screen. You know what I mean? Like I never put that together, but that's an interesting one because I said more like when I played Berserk. I was shooting um, storm oh, ter- totally totally you were you were Han or Luke running through there shooting shooting them trying to get to Princess Leia or something like that but it was never came I mean the cognitive dissonance showed up when Evil Auto arrived because it wasn't Darth Vader but whatever so I mean every so after Space Invaders every game including Asteroids Asteroids, Asteroids especially Asteroids is definitely playing Star Wars because I know there were no Asteroids in Star Wars but like Something about the the um, the vector graphics somehow that just it just clued Star Wars to me. And you I, want to know why? Because why? there's a whole scene. Oh um, yes. There's multiple scenes in this movie when they're using green vectors to display on the screen um, targeting and and to show um, the Death Star coming around the side of the moon and all of the gr- so green vectors. And even the green graphics of, of Space Invaders. Oh, my gosh. That makes sense. Well, Space Invaders, yeah. the second version of Space Invaders that came out had, like, color bands on it. But we played the original one that didn't. That was uh, that was all green. Right. And we played that at actually, um, actually, first time I remember actually putting a quarter to play the game at the uh, at the Shakey's Pizza. Oh, okay. The That's one. fine. We might not have played it that day that we went to Miniature Golf. I mean, Mom had dropped two bucks each on Miniature Golf. There's no way we we're going to get any more money to play. Yeah, that was two, two, that was two bucks in nineteen seventy-nine dollars or seventy-eight dollars. And Jeff, I know that you have a piece about the actual history of the Star Wars arcade games. Why don't we do that right now, too? Okay. Yeah. What follows is the history of the Star Wars arcade game recorded by Jeff and I. Jeff read the history, and I read the quotes from the various people. When we did this, Jeff thought it sounded like a Catholic Mass. So, this is now called the Liturgy of the Star Wars Coin-Op. I hope you enjoy it. Jeff, 
We're going to do a history of the Star Wars Arcade game, but you like to call it what? The Liturgy of Star Wars. And why do you this call it? This is in the, the format of a Catholic Mass. It is. We didn't plan it that way, but that's this is our. It's this is a weird attempt to create a history, and I guess maybe maybe we won't do this again. <laughs> no, I liked it actually. This was great. Okay, cool. Okay, introduction. The Atari Star Wars arcade game was released in May 1983 timed to coincide with the release of the final movie in George Lucas's original trilogy, Return of the Jedi. Okay, the game was announced like this in the Atari Coin-Up publication, Coin Connection. The player becomes Luke Skywalker at the control of his X-Wing fighter and enters into the epic confrontation with Darth Vader and the agents of the Galactic Empire. The new, super-realistic flight control is the most responsive game control ever. Players feel as if they were really blasting through space, guiding a rebel X-Wing. Lasers are fired by using the trigger buttons on the bottom or top of the grippers. Gameplay progresses through three basic scenes. Beginning with the X-Wing approaching the Death Star in flight through deep space, the player is immediately confronted by the fire of the Empire's TIE Fighters. Suddenly, the Death Star looms ahead on the screen. As he flies in towards the surface of the planet, the player discovers a battlefield of laser towers and bunkers through which he must navigate. Finally, he slips into the attack run through the trench, bristling with laser cannons to drop a single proton torpedo down the exhaust port and blow up the Death Star. No, I want to. I want to. I want to comment on this really quick before I finish. This is not what happens in the game. You you don't start. You know there aren't three screens to begin with. There's only two or three levels. You go directly to the Death Star to shoot into the trench from space in the first. And there, well, that's if you start on easy. You can. I don't start remember there being proton torpedoes either. Well, I, I, you, everything you just shoot, You just shoot them. You just shoot directly into the into the so, exhaust um, port. So I think with the, if you start on hard, you do all of this. If you start on easy, you Oh, start. okay. So you can start with all so of this at I once. guess the, the copywriter who wrote this started on hard. Okay. Or maybe they had the game set to hard. So the, so the person who wrote this experienced everything. That's probably what happened. Right. Star Wars coin video games available in two all-new cabinet styles. The stand-up offers players the high-tech hardware to accompany gameplay. The special cockpit cabinet surrounds the player and simulates the full impact of a space battle environment. Star Wars is much more than a blockbuster name. It's a blockbuster gameplay. We've done our homework. Atari introduces a new space-age coin video experience, the ultimate of fantasy. Its explosive appeal could create lines of players around the block, all waiting for their shot at Darth Vader and his minions. Remember, the Force will always be with you. And that's from Atari Coin Connection. Their external coin-op publication was about eight pages every issue from May 1983. The game didn't come out till a few months later. All of the Star Wars movies were out before the game. Yeah, yeah. But we noticed they... So they released it right with Return of the Jedi. Like, this is... Actually, I don't know if it's the first time a game was released with the... You know, coincided with the movie. I think that was probably Tron. I'm not really sure how close the Tron game was to when the movie came out. But I'm, I remember it being relatively close. This was a fairly early version of... To release a game at the same time a movie was released. Development. The Atari Star Wars arcade game was started by a team of six in the latter half of 1982, led by game designer Mike 
Haley. Is it Halley or Haley? It's ha- it's M- it's H A L L E Y. So, so it's, it's Halley or Haley. I think so it's I'm Hallie. just going to say anyway. I'm going to say Mike Halley. Okay. Also on the team were programmers Earl Vickers, Norm Avalar, and Greg Rivera. Atari engineer Jed Margolin. Jed Margolin. Jed Margolin designed the next generation XY vector hardware used in the game. It, it was color too. It was super color. I know that color had been in Tempest also, but this That's one was right. like 3D. So the game itself was based on an unreleased coin op that was languishing in development hell at Atari for a couple of years prior. It was started as a proposal for first person space war from Atari engineers Jed Margolin and Ed Rotberg in December 1979. All right, and this is from a memo from Jed Margolin and Ed Rotberg called First Person Space War from December 21st, 1979. This is what it says. Gameplay would consist of a player pitting himself against a robot-controlled fleet of fighters, as in Starfire. So Starfire is a non-Atari vector game that basically you're shooting TIE fighters out of the sky. There's a version of it for the Vectrex, which is actually pretty good. Actually, it's a version of it for the Vectrex that I believe someone did as a homebrew, but it's still really cool. I just played it today, as a matter of fact. Continue. Also possible would be attacking some kind of enemy base, as in Star Wars, which the enemy fighters would be defending. So, like, Starfire didn't really have that. You just fought ships the whole time. So the idea was to take what was in Starfire as a vector game, but really turn it into a multi-stage... Like they want to make it Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. yeah, without the, the Star Wars license. Star Wars without saying Star Wars. And remember, this is December 21st, 1979. So this is before Empire Strikes Back came out. So this is, Star Wars is still, it's only two years down the line. It's still fresh in the minds of these guys, you know, right. these developers. And they're still itching to, to build Star Wars, I got to tell you. Anyway, continue. The game soon morphed into a project named Warp Speed, but internal issues caused the game development to be delayed. Okay, this is from Dane Flansburg. He's a former project archivist at the Strong Museum of Play. He said this, The game was originally developed as Warp Speed, a space game which attempted to utilize 3D image capabilities. Warp Speed began production in 1980, but after two years, the project had considerable issues. In July 1982, the team working on Warp Speed decided the game could use a boost. So so actually, the Strong Museum received a a huge selection of Star Wars coin-op related materials. Some of it's online, some of it's not. So some of the things in this history are from um, that story. Uh, But if you really want to see all those things, you got to go to the Strong museum and see if you can check them out. Morphine warp speed into Star Wars might have seemed like a great idea in hindsight, but while in development to Jed Margolin, it felt like a betrayal to the original math algorithms and hardware design from 1979. Okay, and this is Jed Margolin from Vax email March 7th, 1983. I resent having to generate this memo, having to defend hardware that I designed three years ago when the project was warp speed. It received no support from management. Now that has become Star Wars, and Atari has paid George Lucas one or two million dollars, there is more interest in the project. However, the game that is being developed does not take advantage of the real capabilities of either hardware or algorithms. Wow. Yeah, that's Jed. So imagine, like, Jed is a... Jed Marglin was, was an amazing coin-op designer. 
and he built, I believe he, he built the hardware for Battlezone as well. And he probably wanted, like, more physics involved. You know, the Star Wars game does not have much physics in it. It's, well, no, it's on rails. Yeah, it's all on rails. So he's probably like, wow, we could have done so much more with the physics and the space flight and everything with the hardware they designed. But instead, it's really a, yeah, it really, it's like a the Star Wars arcade game is great. I love it. But the Star Wars arcade game is like a uh, dark ride where you, where you shoot at things. I mean, if you think about it. It is. Um, but I understand his point, though. It's a great. They, they made a great game out of it, but he wanted more for it. <clears throat> to continue, this is most likely why, even though the basic idea of the game came from Margolin, Jed's name does not appear as part of the development team for the final game. Kind of sad. It he took, probably still should have. But it should have. It's his hardware. It took the team six grueling months to complete the Star Wars version of the game. Lucasfilm were looking for something totally revolutionary for their precious license, which had, as of then, never been made into an official coin-op arcade game. Not only was there intense time pressure to get the game finished by May of 1983, when the last of the original trilogy, Return of the Jedi, was scheduled for theatrical release, but there was also a lot of scrutiny from the Lucasfilm team over Atari's work on the game. Here's a quote from Mike Halley from an interview from 1983. We worked with them, Lucasfilm, very closely. That means they got lots of notes. Yes, that means they got lots of notes. I think that's what he's trying to point as. We got notes. They got a lot of notes, yeah. Okay, to continue on more with the history. Hardware included a custom math coprocessor to calculate the 3D math. The new color Atari XY monitor could display medium resolution and could draw more objects than previous versions. The game included newly designed sound chips to handle the music and voice samples, plus a brand new control system to simulate flight. The audio in the game was really something special. It included several crystal clear audio samples of the type that had only been used sparingly in high compressed format in previous games. This is from Greg Vera, senior programmer in the game. The game's audio is so faithful to the movie that when we were testing the game in the field, people were trying to see if they could spot a hidden 8-track tape recorder. 8-track. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Lucasfilm provided the original voice track for the audio which programmer Earl Vickers sampled for use in the audio chip embedded in the hardware. The speech was provided by the TMS 5220 speech synthesizer IC from Texas Instruments. When test marketed, the game controls were some of the highest rated ever for an Atari video game. This is Mike Halley again. It's like driving a tricycle. When you go right, you turn right. You want to go left, you turn left. You know how to use it automatically. You don't have a panel full of buttons to figure out. Plus, the firing control is mounted directly in the steering mechanism. I love the controls of that game. I know. The <laughs> controls are awesome, actually. That's why I, I think that's why you don't see it in many like retro collections or anything. Well, well besides the licenses, that, that the controls are so important to the game that that you, you really can't live without them. That's why this new one-up cabinet that's coming up for Christmas that has all three of Atari's Star Wars games on it is so intriguing because it's really the only way to play it. So how, so how much is that going to be, do you know? Uh, 300 bucks, I think. So just as an aside, and I just saw it today, I was just at the GameStop, and they have the Atari coin-op that has Asteroids, Major Havoc, Tempest, and, and another... Um, another vector game all for 199 like it's oh, been wow. dropped down to 199 yeah. and i asked Jeannie if i could get it and she she said no 
<laughs> because there's no place to put yeah, it. No she, place to put it. I was thinking I could put it in the corner of the living room because I really want it. She's oh, let's wait until we've cleaned out the garage and you have your your office space. Oh damn, she's right. Okay, or she said we couldn't set it up until then. I can't do that. Okay, back to the Star Wars. The graphics, however, were one aspect of the game that sailed high above everything else. The game includes a first-person view that, for 1983, was the closest thing to virtual reality almost anyone could imagine. The fact that it took place in the Star Wars universe helped many, many players suspend disbelief even further. Well, this is what we're kind of talking about, too, right? Like, like this is... We now get to play Star Wars. Right, for real. For real, with this. I mean, couldn't play it before everything. Even playing Starfire was, you know, you're kind of shooting at some ships that look like TIE Fighters, you know, that are, you know, an IP violation. But it's not Star Wars. It's a reasonable facsimile. We wanted the real thing. All right. Right. Another quote from Greg Rivera, senior programmer. The display generator is a processor that we are running twice as fast as it's ever been run before. And we have a math processor handling all the calculations responsible for creating the roll, pitch, yaw, and first-person perspective visual effects. The math processor is four to eight times faster than any of its predecessors, and we have an even faster ones on the drawing board. So they planned, you know, this is late This is late in the Atari game for coin ops, or the original Atari, 1983, and they were still planning to, get, to build more and more better hardware, which they did. I mean, as... As a yeah, they, game, they, they stayed on going. under Warner, right? Yeah. They stayed under Warner and made more and more games. So This new hardware did not just appear out of nowhere. In fact, the need for sophisticated hardware to support such a game was mentioned in the first memo for 3D Space Wars from Jed Margolin and Ed Rotberg in 1979. All right, this is, this is the quote. The hardware involved would be an analog vector generator, 6809-based system with a 2901 math coprocessor, or other hardware support. That was in the original spec? Yeah, that was the original spec. So the point here is that even though this came out in 1983, the specs for it were already designed four years before, which is pretty remarkable. And even then, Jed Margolin had been working on the 3D math required to create 3D vector games for at least a year prior to 1979. Okay, here's a quote from Jed Margolin from his, on his website. He has a bunch of documents, and this is unit vector math for 3D graphics. Here's his quote. I developed a unit vector math for 3D graphics in 1978 in order to do a 3D space war game. When I went to Atari, a very stripped down version of the algorithms were used in Battlezone. The full version was used in Star Wars, The Last Starfighter, Tomcat, and Hard Drive and Erase Drive, and as well as the games based on the Hard Drive and Hard Hardware. So, so Jed was there up until Hard Drive was made, which is an absolutely incredible game. So you can see the, the lineage just from the Star Wars game continued allowing Atari games to make, you know, really amazing stuff in into the 90s. I have a note about hard drive and race drive, and I just want to say that, um, you know, the Atari ST one is kind of slow, and we played it, and it wasn't that great, made by Domark. I have the cartridge for the Genesis, and all the super, super chips in the Genesis can't make that game any faster because it's using just 3D math. So right. it's the same speed as the Atari about, ST. Are you talking about the Blast processor in the Genesis? Yeah, the Blast processor in the Genesis is for sprites, not for 3D. It, it's actually anyway. nothing. Isn't the Blast processor doesn't exist? I mean, this has lots of colors and sprites, that's all. Um, but it had nothing to do with 3D, 3D math. No, because it couldn't, it couldn't do this. Yeah. Um, so even Jed's, Jed's 6509 <laughs> and 6502 based, I mean, processors yeah, well, you were read better below. than the... Okay, keep going, because uh, okay. the exact hardware is below. Oh, it's okay. kind of fascinating. But, 
the final hardware for the game was very close to Margolin's original proposal, just multiplied a bit. At the time the game was in production, it was arguably the most sophisticated traditional video game hardware ever produced. All right, so I'll read. This is another quote from Jed Margolin email to Rick Moncrief, June 20th, 1983, and this explains the hardware in the Stars Arcade game. The AVG board contains an analog vector generator which draws the lines on the screen. It has 12 bytes of vector RAM and 4K bytes of vector ROM. The main board contains a 68B09E game processor, 48K bytes of program ROM, 2K bytes of program RAM, option switches, means for reading control panel switches in the pots, a pseudo-random number generator, digital divider, and a matrix processor which performs the math for the 3D graphics. The soundboard contains 68B09E, 16K bytes of ROM for program sound tables and speech vocabulary, a 6532A with 128 bytes of RAM, two bi-directional I.O. ports, and an interrupt timer, 2K RAM, a speech synthesizer, and four Atari custom ICs, a stereo image synthesizer, and an interface on the main board. And I have a good accord that those four custom Atari sound ICs were pokey chips. Probably. Now I'm going to say one thing about this. The format of this kind of is like a Catholic mass. Have you? <laughs> because we have no readings. We have readings from the, the and apostles. We have readings from we the have... apostles of Atari. And then we have the, the yeah. quotes from the Bible. of the. Yes, exactly. So... <laughs> Anyway, another it very might not unique work. We're just trying something different, I guess. Another very unique aspect of the Star Wars coin-op was the sit-down cockpit version of the game. It placed the player directly in the action as if they were flying an actual X-Wing fighter. Okay, here's a quote from the May 1983. The special cockpit cabinet surrounds the player and simulates the full impact of a space battle environment. He really will feel the force. The cockpit features a 25-inch quadrascan color monitor with the latest XY technology. You know, I'm sure I read that out of the film. You may have, but I just wanted you to say the force so I could say, may the force be with you. You say, may the force be with you, and then you shake okay. hands at church. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Catholic Church. It doesn't matter. I just said it. I All was, right, we'll do I it was, at the end. I was continuing on with the with the um, with the Catholic Mass version of our thing. Curiously, this idea for an immersive cabinet had been around ever since the first memo for 3D Space War in 1979. And again, from the memo from 19, 1979 from Jed Margolin, Ed Rotberg says <laughs> this: the cabinet should be one that provides isolation for the player. <laughs> This is pretty cool. This whole thing is just like a Catholic mass. Anyway, uh, okay. Beyond the hardware, the gameplay itself was the perfect mix for an arcade game, and the Star Wars theme made it come alive. Atari negotiated long and hard to win the license from Lucasfilm. Okay, from Mike Halley's interview in 1983. It was no small feat to get the game, so I was under a lot of pressure to make the game go over well. So again, lots of notes from Lucasfilm. Lots of notes. Lots and of notes and memos One of those George. memos is com coming up, just so you know. Lucasfilm were very exacting when it came to the Star Wars license, and the team at Atari were beholden to the rules that might not govern other video game projects. Okay, and again, from the Mike Howley interview from 1983, they require a very elaborate overview of the Star Wars universe. It has to fit in the style of play, its sequence, and the options open to the player. You couldn't kill Darth Luke also can't really get killed. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Some of Atari's ideas for the game did not sit well with Lucasfilm. In a memo from December 15, 1982, they stated that seven bulleted inconsistencies that needed to be addressed. These ought to be good. Okay, here they are. 
Overall, it sounds like this could be an exciting and involving game. There are, however, a number of inconsistencies with the Star Wars universe that should be changed. <laughs> these are funny if you if you're a Star yeah. Wars fan, these are these are hilarious. One, there is no gunner in an X-wing. Of course not. Two, there would not be any stars between the X-Wing and the Death Star. <laughs> Three, the shields in the Star Wars universe are made of energy, not metal. Which is, which, I guess, we didn't really know at the time, right? I mean, they had metal shields also, I'm sure. Yeah, but... Because they mean, closed blast doors and things. They closed okay. blast doors, but maybe the blast doors have energy. Number four, isn't, <laughs> isn't warp drive a term from Star Trek? Oh my god, that must have really pissed them off. <laughs> <laughs> Number five. The method of charging the deflector shields has no parallel in the current reality of the Star Wars universe. That's I'm, I'm right now I'm guessing super they, fan they guys didn't like watch Star Wars. They didn't they were all Star Trek guys trying to make a Star Wars game. It does seem like they were Star Trek guys trying to make a Star Wars game. But that's it okay. does. And they, and they seem like they were mad about it being Star Wars. Like Star Wars was like something that was like bad beneath for them, them or something beneath them like i don't know it sounds like the target engineers were like a little bit like star wars was lower on the total no, pool than i think that, than, that might not have been all of them but there might have been there might have been i'm some just saying them. it's funny anyway go ahead sorry okay. this is, uh, this, this, is who knows, this memo could have been written by a marketing guy who had no idea about any of it right, right. okay you're right like like maybe it was written by a guy who said no 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 we're gonna we're gonna communicate with lucasfilm oh, you're okay. not going to you're probably right you're and probably then, right told, then the marketing guy totally messed up all the star wars stuff. i'm gonna guarantee that the atari engineers were total star wars nerds and this was either a mistake or someone who didn't understand star wars wrote this but i'm gonna blame it on a suit too yes, you're right let's blame this on a suit number six the control of the x-wing in the trench should be under user control Oh, okay. So they were. This is the on. Like they were going to make it on rails, like totally on rails, I guess. Right. Where you, but I think do, you do move the ship around as well as the gun sight when you're the, like the you move the gun sight and then the ship follows. So that must be what what they're referring to because that is does how it works in the trench, even though you're <laughs> yeah, on like, rails. I like number seven. Okay, number seven. Message fourteen says the Death Star is X parcels away. We assume you meant parsecs. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that's all there is. We too bad we didn't get to see the other memo. I, it, again, the Strong Museum has all this stuff. It's great that you found this stuff, though. Okay, back to our um, our uh, Star Wars yeah. liturgy <laughs> of Star liturgy? Wars. This is really the liturgy of the Star liturgy Wars. Liturgy of Star. Even though Lucasfilm exerted a lot of control over the game, the development team still managed to include some surprises hidden from management. For instance, the game included an Easter egg that displayed the names of the development team inside the gameplay. Okay, this is from an internal Atari email, January 31st, 1984. This is funny. This is funny. Okay, I, that's right. This is from an internal Atari email where the guy making, the guy who developed, the, the guys who are developing Crystal Castles were pissed because they couldn't right. put an Easter egg in their game. Okay, and I I left that out because I didn't want to. I left out their names because I didn't want this to seem petty. But I thought it was really funny. This is the quote: Star Wars had the names of the people appear in every odd wave going into the Death Star. It seems a little inconsistent to me that the Star Wars project could have their names in Crystal Castles. Couldn't. <laughs> it's really sad, actually. I remember the name name of the guy who did that, and then. Can, yeah. Well, if anyone wants to look up who developed yeah. Crystal Castle, I'll, I'll, I'll just okay. continue here. This is the response to that email, which, again, I left out the pe people's names. By the way, Star Wars got their names in the game because they did it and did not tell anybody about it. If your ethics were equally low, you could have done it in Crystal Castles, too. 
<laughs> you can, you know what? If people want to know who wrote those, you can go look up Atari internal email, like this Vax email and stuff, and see who, who that was. I just think those quotes are really funny. And did you search and, on and I like think, Atari internal emails for Star yeah, Wars and just? Yeah, nice. no, there's there's Vax email that's on Jed Marglin's site, and oh. I just searched for Star Wars in it. But here's the thing. This is every, you know, inside my company, things like this happen all the time, too, where someone got to do something and someone gets upset about it. But, like, really, the answer is in the first one. You just don't tell anybody about it and you get you. Right. <laughs> you, you don't you ask for forgiveness instead of for permission. Anyway, let's go on. So that's the development. So what about the so reception? reception? So reception, though. Now we're getting to the part of the liturgy of a Star Wars reception. Yes. Star Wars, the arcade game, received stellar reviews from the video game press at the time. Electronic Fun had one of the very first reviews of the game from their November 1983 issue. This is Mike Blanchett, Electronic Fun, November 1983. In this game, which, by the way, does incredible justice to the first George Lucas flick of the same name, Lucas, I've heard, is quite happy with the way the game turned out. You are cast as Luke Skywalker. Joystick Magazine was also enthused about the coin operation extravaganza that was Star Wars the arcade game. Okay, this is from Joystick, November 1983. From Obi-Wan Kenobi's Use the Force look to the spectacular explosion of the Death Star, Star Wars is non-stop action and fun. Electronic Games Magazine waited a few more months to publish their thoughts, but they were no less enthusiastic about the game. This is uh, Bill Kunkel, Electronic Games Magazine, March 1984. The Force was really with Atari when they designed this marvelous electronic simulation of an assault on the fearsome Death Star, especially in sit-down form. As the gamer takes his seat within the X-Wing recreation, gripping the unusual steering and fire controls, a flood of movie-induced images are created with uncanny accuracy, accompanying the this outer space dogfight is a combination of John Williams' masterful score and familiar dialogue from the first three George Lucas films. Star Wars proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that vector graphics have a place in today's sophisticated high-tech arcade. Like LaserDisc and raster scan graphics, there are some games that seem to have been made for this type of visual presentation. Let's talk about that for a second, because this probably was the last great vector game that came out. But yes, I think that the th that we just had seen above that when when Atari split the 3D math was still something they were using. Right, but it's so the last great vector game. But what Bill Kunkel is pointing out here is 3D graphical games are here to stay. Are which, here to stay, which is basically right. what vector games are. They're the precursor to to, to 3D graphic you know process. Right, just they're they're completely wire for wireframe 3D. That's all it is. Yeah, I so, mean this is wireframe 3D, not all. This of is it, but yeah. So uh, in that way, hard driving is a is a is a distant cousin of Star Wars. The same math is just it's a raster scan, and they they could actually like have some. The polygons could actually have to be filled in. Yeah, they're slightly filled Otherwise, they probably they, would have made hard driving with vector graphics. Vector scan probably would have been awesome. Okay, the game was also nominated for Coin Op of the Year 1985 by Electronic Games Magazine yeah. and won the award against other games like Discs of Tron, Mach 3, Fly Hunter, and Track and Field. Yeah, the, the, the coin up awards were weird in, there was a year after um, Electronic Games, and even then it was like another year. Like, Star Wars came out late, like in mid-83, but it really didn't hit... It really, it kept going through 1984. Hey, hey, it's not like the Emmys. It just means that the game became more and more popular yeah, it, and won like, in 85. It was still right? in like 1980. I think I, when Dragon's Lair fell off because everyone just figured it was just a really bad Rails game. Yeah. Then it turned out that these, that, look, look at the list of games. 
none of them. I mean, Mach Three's got video in it, but really, none of those are laser disc games. Yeah. So okay, and this is the quote from Electronic Games: Winning in two different divisions in the same year proves that this multi-screen blastathon is a hit wherever players encounter it. That's January 1985, which really means it was front written in three months before 1984. And this is the end of Electronic Games, so they're burning off all the stories that those guys wrote at the end of their term anyway. 1984. So yeah. and so the people publishing this in January 1985 didn't have any idea what they're doing anyway. So uh, they didn't really know anything about video games. They didn't know right. much. Oh, oh, they're gone. You're right. Yeah, These yeah, are just gone. like Okay. The game was a top seller for Atari in the declining era of the golden age of the arcade. The stand-up version sold about 10,245 units and the cockpit version sold about 2,450. Yeah, that up <laughs> They're a couple grand a piece, so... Yeah, it was an expensive machine. It's an expensive machine, and they made a lot of money on it. Not not as much money as you would think, but they made a, a decent amount of money on Star Wars. But who knows what they license it for, the cost of the license, the development of building everything. It could have contributed to right. Atari's demise. I mean, they made like 25, let's say like $25 million on the game. So they made something. But okay. like, yeah, if yeah. the license cost a lot and the ship, the creation, and there's also a point at which the game is marked down in price too. Right. See, right. I, I would say that like, it should have done for what it was, it should have done better. I just think there weren't enough arcades around to- the Locations, um, right. There the weren't locations enough locations started. anymore. Yeah. That you could not at this point um, get a game into the liquor store anymore, right? I mean, it no, wasn't there. No, there weren't. I mean, there are other so, games, but not, but not a game like this. Too expensive. Not a big cabinet like this. Or I mean, in, you know, it's expensive, expensive liquor stores, which are getting cheap games. You know, okay, home version. In the September 1984 edition of Electronic Games, published in July 1984, Parker Brothers published an ad for the Star Wars arcade game with the tagline "Coming Home." On page 18 and 19, it included three mini ads of a dude in sunglasses holding a joystick. No systems were mentioned or graphics shown. Bob Smith, who programmed video pinball at Atari for the 2600 before straying away to a magic, developed the 2600 version on contract for Parker Brothers, along with Wilfredo Aguilar. Development started in 1983 and was finished in mid-year 1984. Okay, so on Kevin Savitz anti-Katari podcast, Bob Smith said this about creating the home version of the Star Wars arcade game for the Atari VCS. Star Wars was on contract for Parker Brothers. Unfortunately, it was a rush job. They said, we're only going to own this license for another 12 weeks or something idiotic, so I busted my hump for that long to get it done, and I still would have liked another week or two. There are still some things I don't like about that game. It's but pretty, we played we it. Played it's it. pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it works, but it but it really sort of loses a lot of the magic at the same time. And and I think that was the problem with with the twenty six hundred in the later era was that yes, you could make some games that seem like the arcade games if you worked hard enough, but you probably shouldn't have. They probably should have been focusing on a, you know a, a backwardsly compatible platform that. Um, that could play better games like yeah, if the 70, if the 7800 came out or, or the 5200 or, or came out with backwards compatibility in when it came out um, running the Atari 800 cartridges rather than 5200 cartridges and then everything they could have kept this whole ecosystem going that okay been cool. cool yeah um, okay. I like it though it's good it's good go Let ahead me, okay go. History has been kinder to the 2600 version of the game. This is from AtariProtos.com. Thankfully, this is one of the few arcade translations that Parker Brothers got right. The only real complaint I have is that the controls are a little mushy. 
And that's kind of true. It do, and it does play well. Okay. Um, continuing on, the 2600 version came out very late in the 2600 cycle. So very few gamers saw it in action. In fact, I still have never owned a copy. Um, however, the game was released on nearly every other platform available at the time. Atari 2600, Atari 5200, the Atari 8-bit computer family, ColecoVision, and the Commodore 64, and later for the Amiga, Atari ST, Amstrad, CPC, ZX, Spectrum, Acorn, Electron, BBC Micro, and Enterprise 64, as well as new versions for the Atari 8-bits and the Commodore 64 for the UK and Europe. In particular, the computer version for various platforms was a sizable hit and received very well by the gaming community. Electronic Games in 1984, December 1984, Tracy Foreman. Again, this is the last real issue of Electronic Games. The home translation of the Atari game has all the features of the coin-op, even down to a good implementation of the game's vector graphics. And I believe that was a, for the Commodore 64 review. The home version won the 1985 Arky Award in Electronic Games Magazine for Science Fiction Fantasy Video Computer Arcade Game of the Year. And this is what they said. The first-person multi-screen shootout may run somewhat counter to the current trend of think tank software, but it shows there is always an avid audience for a slickly programmed action game. Electronic Games 1985. What do you think yes. they meant by that? Think Tank software must be, they must be referring to computer games. Computer games. Like yeah, computer games had morphed into role-playing games and, and, and Ultima. And, and this like is that. a really good ending for our history, because if you think about it, the Star Wars Arcade game was probably the last great shoot-em-up of the era. So that's the end of our history. That was a weird, what'd you call that? The Liturgy of Star Wars? The, the Liturgy of Star Wars. So, uh, and actually, before we continue, I've got one more thing to play. This is a little piece of audio I found online on YouTube. Um, attribution will be in the show notes. And it's Don Valentine from Atari explaining how he and other people he knew had been waiting six years to play a Star Wars game. So I'll play that right now. I think that the value that Star Wars offers the game player is probably a state-of-the-art experience as far as video games are concerned because it's truly not the home product that can offer this experience. But more importantly, there's a lot of us Star Wars buffs have been, been waiting around for about six years now to be Luke Skywalker mm -hmm. in a very interactive, personal way. And this uh, provides that opportunity. That's pretty funny, eh? Like, like, it's hilarious. It's like, Although like the it is ironic thing that we're talking that about. Star Raiders had already come out for the um, Atari 800. I know it's not a Star Wars game, but Star Raiders had also come out for the Atari 2600 by that time. And um, those games were as close as they could get, but they still didn't consider them Star Wars, so they didn't really have a license for it. So, so what did you... <laughs> I remember going in, and again, it was Castle Park, um, because it was that's our that was our big-time arcade that we went to. It was the summer of... 83, but probably closer to the end, the summer of 83. Uh, we were just about to start 8th grade, but I remember going in there and seeing the Star Wars arcade game, and my mind was blown, because I'd been playing uh, Time Pilot uh, most of the most of the previous year, and I think you'd been playing Food Fight and Space Duel. Space Duel, especially in Food Fight, yeah, Space Duel and Food Fight were my two favorite, two quarter munchers at the time. 
Um, Asteroids and Pole Position were the two huge quarter munchers for me before that. And then came Space Duel and Food Fight. And I was Um, playing Swimmer and Time Pilot and Galaga probably still, and a few other things. Oh, God, Galaga. Um, But mostly Time Pilot, which I found amazing. But there (coughs) were 3D, except for Pole Position, which was not really 3D because the car was there, but there wasn't anything vector 3D like Star Wars. That was actually. You know what else was in the arcade at the time that was big? Was Dragon's Lair. Yeah, although I never touched a Dragon's Lair machine. No, I used I to watch people, people play Dragon's Lair. And it, I, I mean, I know I played it once. It was 75 cents, which would just blow through our money too quickly. Way too quickly. With eight and, tokens for a dollar and two dollars. And but, you didn't really play. You just like selected a choice and hoped, it, hoped you did it. Like, like to me, it was like the, the antithesis of video game. It was everything I hated about, about, not, about everything that wasn't a video game rolled into one. So seeing the arcade game, to me, like all of a sudden I was super enthralled with that arcade game. And I think it was only a quarter too. Like it, it, the, 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 the sit down one was 50 cents that I think play, they had someplace else, but, um, but you could play for a quarter. And I remember the first time putting a quarter in and hearing Obi-Wan Kenobi say something to me. And I'm like, holy shit. Right, exactly. Even though it was six years later. It was, uh, this is what I wanted to play the whole time. This is what I wanted to be here to play. I was obsessive about trying to destroy the Death Star in that thing. So I'm going to go on a limb and say the vertical blink starts with the, the minute we that we saw the opening scroll of Star Wars. Oh no! I it opens. That's the open. That's like you know, like in Stranger Things where they open up the upside down. That's the opening of yeah. the upside. That's the opening of the vertical blank. Like a exactly. like there was no turning back. <clears throat> the um. That's when the eerie. That's when the eerie. Um, the eerie music sound that we, oh, have, yeah. we have under us talking right now. That's when it started. Sure. No, that's that's exactly when seeing that moment, seeing Star Wars, sitting in the movie theater for the first time, and then coming out of there and, and just being like, I'm never going to be the same person again and in my every life. Every seminal moment that we've talked about and that we will talk about just piled on top of that. I mean, this this podcast could be easily be called Into the Vertical Blank Generation Star Wars. It's just that Star Wars gets too much coverage. Yeah, Star Wars is way too much coverage. Plus, Star Wars turned into a love of Atari. Even though I like Star Wars um, at the same time, Star Wars didn't continue with being the quality that I thought the first well, movie was, where, where, where Atari just kept on putting out newer, newer, and cooler stuff. Yeah, so the Atari coin-ups have like a, a linear mm. projection up, right? They keep getting right. better. And even after they become Atari games, they keep getting better and better. Yes, Star Wars went, uh, Star Wars is amazing. And then I saw Empire Strikes Back, I'm like, um, okay, that was pretty good, but I really like Star Wars. And then I saw Return of the Jedi. We're 13 years old. We're really aging out of this stuff at this point, right. especially in the 80s. You know, grew up a little bit faster. I think Dad had just taken us to see Fast Times at Ridgemont High the year before. Like, right, and it's like, oh. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the Ewoks kind of were like, I don't, I don't even watch movies. I think we saw Alien, you know, I mean, not Aliens, but... I mean, you know, a few years before, I mean, we'd seen like Blade Runner and Alien and um, all these other like more. We've, I think we felt like our lives were getting more sophisticated, like we were going to be computer owners, hopefully, and computer right. users. And and then the Ewoks show and you're like, this is really little kid stuff. Like I and I think almost all nobody. I, I don't remember any of our friends talking about Return of the Jedi. No, not much at all. It was not like a event at all. We'd all grown out of it 
Yeah, we um, went to see it, and we weren't buying cards. We weren't buying figures. We oh, well, we were no the toys. I don't even think we got Empire Strikes Back toys. But that was because no. we probably weren't really excited by it. Empire Strikes Back, a lot of people, you know, will go back and say it's the best one of the movies, and I get why they, they say that. But to me, the first one is the best movie, and the, everything after that, while quality can be found, it's not the same as seeing that first movie and having your vertical blank open. No, I think all of my all of my Star Wars love is still um, on, like, fumes from 1977. Like it's, right. But it was so powerful that it still exists. The but, only time that I, I, I mean, a lot of people would argue about this, but for me personally, Rogue One was the only other Star Wars movie at the, that gave me the, the the same style of yeah. So here, I'll, was there say about Rogue One? I agree with you. I love Rogue One, but there are long parts at the beginning that are just boring as all hell. Well, there's parts of I don't understand. Time. Like I don't get the I don't get anything to do with um, why why she's an orphan and they're doing this stuff, right? I, I don't get it at all. Yeah, I, I, but they, but so they, they don't, It's a, but there are great, the, the last like 45 minutes of that movie is like a, just basically the only Star Wars prequel necessary. The, the, yeah, the reason why is that it leads right up to the starting of the Star Wars movie. And you can watch that movie and Star Wars with two kids age 14 and 11. Or, and they will get it right. It goes because it goes right into you can it. Watch them both next to one another. Go, oh, this is awesome! It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a four and a half hour like movie marathon, and they both fit together really, really well. Yeah, it's like a direct and it prequel. Makes one fantastic story. But all the, I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm disappointed by nearly every other Star Wars movie that's come out. I mean, I haven't hated them or anything, but they, they just kind of like, okay, that's pretty good. <clears throat> I'm always waiting for the moment that I'll see the one that makes me, you know, feel like I did in 1977. I'll tell you what didn't, i tell you what did make me feel like 1977, but it was the wrong way, was seeing The Last Jedi. And when Luke dies... It was. I don't, don't even. Don't even. Talk I just want to say, like, I didn't need to see that. So maybe no. this is my, my, uh, you know, white no. privilege, or I don't even know what I'd say. But no, like, no, my, I guess say it's like a my, first world problems. First world problem, exact. There you go. It's my first world problem. I think it was a crushing blow to the vertical blank. I'm just telling. It was you. a crushing blow. I cried, but I didn't cry because Luke died. That makes right. sense. Right, I understand what you're saying. I walked to the theater and I found myself. I was in the bathroom. I started weeping, and mom had just died and stuff. Mom had just died, so Steve. What? Dad had just. Mom had just died, and then you just saw a crushing blow to they, it what should have been. A, it yeah. crushed me, but not the movie didn't. The fact that they decided to do that did. I didn't need to see it. In in my mind, Luke Skywalker lives forever. I did not have to see him. He is he is I he is my avatar. And going back to all these games that we were talking about, the video games, I'm playing Luke Skywalker in all those games, right? right. I am he, I am he is he is he is me and I am him in those games up until you actually play him in the Star Wars game. And that ends part one, but please join us very soon for part two of the continuing saga of Star Wars and Atari in the Vertical Blank.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.